Okay, we've been studying some assumptions and methods in the interpretation of the Bible. And the reason for this new series has to do with the training of men to be preachers and teachers in the local church. We need to be reminded of the process by which these men are being trained to be preachers and teachers, and as well, why we as the church should have these expectations. We should have harmony, one mind, single-mindedness on the matter of how ministry should be conducted, the preaching and teaching ministry, and the approach to the Bible, uh, both in its leadership and among the members of the church. That's why we have undertaken this series. Some of these things are known, widely known. Some are less known. And so as we continue, last time we ended with point number five. Today we'll start with point number six. Point number six. The apostolic interpretation is always accurate and authoritative. And it serves as the model of interpretation. The apostolic interpretation is always accurate and authoritative, and it serves as the model of interpretation. Examples we find in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. These books have a strong or many clusters and evidences of the apostolic interpretation of the Bible. Apostolic interpretation of the Old Testament and apostolic understanding of the ministry of Christ, what he preached and what he taught. If we were to do a study, we could study one or more of these books and learn from the apostles as they learned from Christ. After all, the apostles learned from Jesus Christ himself. And we shall see this in a moment. But why is this a major issue? Why is this a major premise or assumption we should have in the interpretation of the Bible? Well, there are people over the years who have said Paul was wrong. Paul was wrong on women. Paul was a misogynist. Peter, Peter did not write scripture such as on 1 Peter 3, also dealing with women, 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6. The doctrine of original sin in Adam, that is not found in the Old Testament, and it was invented by the Apostle Paul. Jesus never taught it, so Paul invented it, and therefore it is suspect we ought not to believe it. Original sin in Adam is false they say. These are the kinds of objections people raise against the apostolic interpretation of the Old Testament. We cannot hold to any of those positions. Whatever the apostles say is true, and when they interpret the Old Testament, it is always the correct, accurate interpretation. We said, after all, they learned from Jesus Christ himself. Matthew, no, not Matthew, Luke, Luke 24, Luke 24, 25 to 27, Luke 24, 25. And he said to them, 
O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. It says that Christ explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He was teaching them from the scriptures of the Old Testament. It says also in verse 32, 32, And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? He taught them the meaning of the scriptures of the Old Testament. Also 44, verse 44, 44 to 48, 44 to, or 49, 44. And now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. His words, the words of Christ, according to verse 44, are congruent with Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. They agree, it says in 44. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He told them what was in the Old Testament and then enabled them to understand what's in the Old Testament. And what is it that he taught the, the apostles? 46, that... Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. He directly taught them. Therefore, what the apostles wrote come from Christ. If we doubt the apostles, if we undermine the apostles, if we contradict the apostles, if we say the apostles had man-made doctrines, we are actually impugning Christ. We are undermining Christ. We are contradicting Christ. And that we cannot do if we call him Lord and Savior. An example in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. One time, while holding a study, an informal study on marriage and divorce, a few of us, we were reading Matthew 19, 1 to 12. And it says in verse, verses 7 and 8, Moses, it says in verse 7, 
They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate and divorce her? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. In verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Well, in this Bible study, when we were discussing what Moses permitted, and even what Jesus is saying in verse 9, verse nine except for immorality, the one who was quarreling on this passage said, Moses was not inspired. Moses was not a man of God. He was not inspired, and what he said on this subject was wrong. This is what the quarreler was saying. Can we come, can we come to that conclusion? Or are we supposed to approach this passage on the assumption that Moses is solid, inspired, and accurate, and so is Jesus, inspired and accurate, and therefore, whatever Moses said and whatever Jesus said, we must harmonize to figure out what exactly these verses mean. That's what we have to do. Moses wasn't wrong and Jesus wasn't wrong. Nobody was wrong. The people who were wrong were the Pharisees in verse 3, who were seeking to divorce their wives for any cause at all, or at least considering the possibility in their arguments with others. Any cause at all. No, that is not permitted. Moses is correct. Jesus is correct. Anybody who opposes them is incorrect. Whether they like the view of Moses and Jesus, which are harmonious, or whether they dislike them. The issue is Moses and Jesus are correct. Anybody who undermines them is wrong, incorrect. Next, point number seven. The scriptures declare the historicity of the people and events, which means that supernaturalism, including prophecy, is real. Supernaturalism, the belief in miracles, it has to be real, it has to be true, and prophecy is a part of it. How can someone 500 years or 1,000 years beforehand predict with accuracy what is about to happen. It has to be supernatural. It has to be miraculous. They have to be inspired by God who told them what to write in advance of events that they cannot in any way control. They don't control the future events. God does. On the matter of the events being accurate, and even the supernatural. Luke 1, verse 1. Luke 1, 1. Luke 1, 1 to 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, 
having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Luke continues in the book of Acts, chapter 1. The book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Acts 26, 26, the book of Acts 26 and verse 26. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. The Apostle Paul says that the events of Scripture have not been done in a corner. Nothing is secret. Nothing is hidden from public view. Eyewitnesses, and even this king, can verify through many witnesses, tens if not hundreds of witnesses, exactly what happened. All the miracles of Christ, his death and resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 6. 1 Corinthians 15, 6. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. More than 500 in 1 Corinthians 15, 6 saw Christ at one time, and he says, most of them remain until now. So the king, King Agrippa, could easily go and call, summon 10, 20, 30, 100 300, 400 witnesses and say, did Jesus Christ actually rise from the dead? This Jesus of Nazareth, did he actually? The apostle puts the challenge forth to King Agrippa to do so. And that he would rise from the dead is prophesied in many places of the scriptures. Psalm 16, 8 8 to 11, Psalm 16, 8 to 11, Isaiah 53, Hosea 6, 1 to 3, Jonah 1, 17, that it was prophesied by several prophets and fulfilled. That's what the scripture declares. So we have to believe in supernaturalism and the historical veracity of the Bible. We're not talking about fiction and fables, mythologies. That's for unbelievers. Let them have it, but not for us.
Our next point is number eight. Point eight. To understand the scriptures is to understand that there is only one gospel of salvation from Genesis to Revelation. Christ is the focus of all scripture. There's only one gospel throughout the whole Bible. So we cannot say, well, in the Old Testament, they were saved by works, works of the law of Moses. As faithfully as they could keep it, they would be saved. Or they were saved by faith in whatever ambiguities and vagaries about God that they understood, they would be saved that way. And then in the New Testament, after the day of Pentecost, we have concreteness, clarity, certainty that you have to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. No, everyone is saved from Genesis to Revelation in the same way. They must believe in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament prophets anticipated the coming of Christ. The New Testament apostles announce the completion, the complete work of the coming of Christ. That's the difference, main difference between the Testaments. One is looking ahead and the other is, is looking behind and telling us it has been accomplished. Is this scriptural? Yes. John 5, 39. Jesus says so himself. John 5, 39. That he is the focal point and that he and Moses agree. <coughs> John 5, 39 to 47. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses wrote of Christ. What Christ spoke is in harmony with what Moses wrote. No contradiction. And the focal point, the center of all scripture, is Christ himself. This is the consistent testimony and approach of the apostles. Acts 17, Acts chapter 17, verses 2 to 3, Acts 17, 2. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and sing. This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. Paul's custom was to enter the synagogue 
and reason with them from the scriptures, from the scriptures of the Old Testament, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. He had to. Why did he have to do it? Well, one reason is the prophets said so. All the prophets said so. Whoever addressed his resurrection, they all said that he would suffer and rise again. So if they said so, then it must happen that way. That's why it says the Christ had to suffer. It was of necessity. And this Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. The same in 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. One gospel with Christ at the center. 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. The Apostle Paul to Timothy, the pastor, explaining what he learned from his childhood, which his grandmother and mother taught him. 2 Timothy 1, 5 say, say mother and grandmother taught him. 2 Timothy three fourteen, He says this. This is what Timothy learned from childhood. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 15 says he learned from childhood. What did he learn? He learned about wisdom, the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. His mother, and especially his grandmother, would have only had the scriptures of the Old Testament to teach Timothy. And the Old Testament teaches salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And it teaches everything that we need for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It teaches, our, uh, uh, teaches us not only salvation, but teaches us sanctification. Speaking of sanctification, point nine. Sanctification is the result of true salvation. That's true in the Old Testament. That's also true in the New Testament. Sanctification, holiness, growth in the faith, obedience, greater obedience, more and more rejection of sin, a life of repentance, daily repenting of sins, the Spirit of grace who saves is the Holy Spirit who sanctifies. The Spirit of grace saves us. Hebrews 10.29 calls him the Spirit of grace. But the Holy Spirit is the one who dwells in us. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians Chapter 3, 3, 16. 
Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. The temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So we should not destroy our temple. If we destroy our temple, God will destroy us, according to verse 17. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God in your body. Our bodies, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, should be pursuing holiness and the glorification of God, not sin. Our bodies do not belong to us, but to the Holy Spirit of God. And Galatians 5 explains an assortment of sins. Galatians 5, 16 to 26 Galatians 5:16 But I say walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please but if you are led by the spirit you are not under the law now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousings, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. The process of sanctification is a lifelong rejection, a lifelong turning away from these deeds of the flesh so that we produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit of God. Lifelong. It does not happen automatically but it should be evident and growing in each of us. Any interpretation of Scripture that undermines this doctrine is heresy. It's lawlessness, licentiousness, antinomianism. It has no place in the Bible. Point 10, point number 10, 
The relationship of the Testaments. What is the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament? This actually is one of the most important questions we could ever ask about the relationship of the Testaments. What is that relationship? If we come to a correct understanding, we'll do well. But the moment Old Testament commentators, Old Testament scholars undermine the true nature of the relationship, and even the New Testament scholars, when they do so, they are actually putting a big wedge in the Bible and distorting Scripture. We cannot let that happen. Heretics from ancient times, from Marcion onward. Marcion hated the Old Testament. He hated much of the New Testament also. He had uh, a very, very concise, small set of books that he considered the Bible, which composed some of the books of the New Testament and none of the books of the Old Testament. Marcion, in A.D. 150 about 50 years after the death of the Apostle John. But that is impossible. We cannot do so. The two Testaments work together. And let's see several examples from the book of Acts. The book of Acts will explain. And if we have these many testimonies in the book of Acts as to the way the disciples preached the way that they argued and reasoned, explaining and gave evidence, the way they persuaded people, the way they even confounded and refuted people. If they did it this way, then we ought to do it this way. If they did it this way, then there is a proper relationship between the Testaments that we ought to maintain ourselves. So we have these examples, several in the book of Acts. Acts 3 the book of Acts, chapter 3, verse 18. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. What he announced beforehand by the mouth of all his prophets that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Fulfilled. Chapter 7, Acts chapter 7, 51 to 53. 751. You men who are stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets? Did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. The unbelieving people of Israel they persecuted all the prophets. He puts a challenge before them. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They persecuted all of them because they were preaching righteousness in Christ. They killed those who had announced, previously announced the coming of the righteous one. 
What were the prophets teaching? The coming of the righteous one. And Stephen is saying it has been fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. Chapter, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9 and verse 22. After the conversion of the apostle Paul, Acts 9.22, it says this about Paul, called Saul in this text. 9.22, but Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. He was confounding the Jews and proving that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. 929, 9.29, and he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. Talking and arguing, was he sinning? No. Was he preaching righteousness? Was he preaching Christ? Yes. And though he was doing good to them by preaching the truth to them, they were wanting to put him to death. He certainly was not preaching anything sugar-coated. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, verse 43. 1043. Peter says, Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. What were the prophets saying that harmonizes with the Apostle Peter's message? They bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Chapter 24, Acts chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. 24, 14. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. The Apostle Paul tells them that whatever was written in the Law and the Prophets, he believes everything. And even these people who are accusing him of being a sect, which means being a cult, he's saying, no, no, I'm not a cultist because I am serving the God of our fathers and even our ancestors and even these men have the same hope in the resurrection of the dead. How can I be a cult or a sect when I'm preaching in harmony with the prophets and what these men say they believe? They hated it being Jesus of Nazareth. That was the problem. Jesus of Nazareth and repentance for forgiveness of sins. Because they hated those doctrines, they wanted to put him to death. 
Also, Acts 26. 26, 22. Acts 26, 22. 22 to 23. And so, having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he should be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Then verse 27 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. The prophets preached Christ's death and resurrection. So there's no need to find disharmony and put a wedge between the Testaments. They're all in agreement. So we must understand them together. <clears throat> Further, Acts 28 23. Acts 28, 23. And when they had set a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. The Apostle Paul again, from the law and the prophets, from Moses and the rest of the prophets, explaining Christ from the scriptures. That is the proper relationship of the Testaments. Point 11, point 11. Discover, if given, the prophet or apostle's purpose for writing. Many times the scripture will say, state explicitly the reason for writing. Like we read in Luke 1, 1 to 4, Luke wanted Theophilus to know the exact truth of the things he has been taught. The exact truth. He wanted him to know so. If he wanted him to know so, we ought to know so. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John 20, 30 to 31. The book of Micah, Micah the prophet, he tells us as well. He tells us in Micah chapter 3, verse 8. <clears throat> Micah 3, 8. On the other hand, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel, his sin. He is filled with power, the spirit of the Lord, justice and courage. Why courage? 
because of what he's about to say. What's his purpose in writing? To make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel, his sin. Most people are afraid. They are timid to make known the sins of others face to face. Yet he is filled with power, the spirit, justice, and courage to do so. And what's his fundamental purpose? You need to tell the people about their sin, that they need to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ to be saved from their sins. That's what Micah preached. We'll stop there for now. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.